Someone called this past week and asked if it would ever be appropriate to uh, ask a question on Sunday morning. Uh, I cannot imagine why it wouldn't be. It's nowhere written that you can't. And uh, if I should happen to fog you out at any point, I think you should feel free to raise your hand and we'll try to clarify. Howard Hendricks used to say, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. And I, I suspect that sometimes it looks like a cloudburst to you up here, and it might help me to clarify my own mind as well as yours. So uh, certainly, if you have a question, feel free to uh, to ask, preferably questions that I can answer, but uh, any questions gratefully received. I'd like to have you turn to Exodus 19, and we want to try to unravel this morning what uh, is really a very nutty problem, that is the relationship between law and promise. I heard uh, a story some time ago of an elderly gentleman who objected to the reading of the law, the reading of the Ten Commandments in church on Sunday morning because he said it puts so many bad ideas in young people's minds. And that uh, may be one approach to the law. Uh, there are many that are probably just as bad. Some people uh, see the Old Testament and law as a kind of negative backdrop to grace. In other words, you read the Old Testament to see how bad people had it back then so you can uh, read the New Testament re- with relief. It's sort of like hitting yourself over the head with a hammer. It feels so good when you quit. There are others that uh, that see the law in the Old Testament as God's prescribed way of salvation then. In other words, salvation was by works in the Old Testament era, and now in the age of grace, it's by faith. You'd be surprised how many Christians uh, hold that that idea in their minds. And there are others that believe that law is still the prescribed way, we come into a relationship with with God by faith through Christ, but we maintain that relationship by obedience to the law. It's a widely held idea. And then there's the basic human assumption that uh, if we are good enough, somehow it will all balance out in the end. If we keep the law, someday we'll stand before God and our good works will outweigh our bad works and God will have to accept us. The argument goes like this, how could God possibly turn me away when I've done so many good things? Now those are all widely held but erroneous uh, ways of looking at the law. What I'd like to do this morning is show you what I think is the biblical view of the relationship between law and promise. Because I don't see them as mutually opposed principles. They work hand in hand. Now, just to refresh your thinking, we've been talking about the promise, the line of promise as it's uh, revealed in the book of Genesis. It begins after the fall with the promise that uh, Eve would have a descendant, she would have a son, who would someday set things right. He would crush the head of the serpent, but in so doing, inflict pain upon himself. That's the first gospel, the first good news, the promise that... uh, A man, a God-man as we saw, will someday set things right. Centuries uh, passed, and uh, man was very nearly exterminated as a result of of the flood. 
And then there was a second impetus given to, to the promise. We were told that the man would come through a third of the human race, through the line of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. More time passed, and uh, the promise was reaffirmed to Abraham. And now we know that the man will come through one of Abraham's descendants, his seed. And that idea is further elaborated through the rest of the book of Genesis. The man will come through the line of Isaac. In other words, he will not uh, come through Ishmael's seed. He'll not be an Arab. He'll come through Isaac. And then uh, Jacob, the old rascal, the old scoundrel whom God loved, the line would come through Jacob. And then the promise is further delimited in the 49th chapter of Genesis when we're told that one of Jacob's sons, Judah, would be the father of Shiloh, the man who will make peace, who will come. Now, we haven't talked about that element of the promise yet. We will do that later on in our series. But uh, through the process of elimination, the line is narrowed down to one tribe of the nation of Israel. We know that the man will be a, a Judean who comes through Judah. Uh, as I read through this, uh, this description of the line of promise, it always reminds me of the process of delivering a letter. The postman looks at the uh, front of the letter and he realizes what state the... Uh, recipient of the letter lives in, and then it's further narrowed down to the city, and then the street, and then the particular house on the street, and finally one inhabitant in the house, so that by the process of elimination, the letter arrives at its destination. That's how the man was delivered. It came through the line as it's spelled out in the book of Genesis. Now, when we come to the end of Genesis, the, uh, the family of Jacob is still quite small. It only numbers about 70, and and they go down into Egypt, and the book of Genesis closes with uh, Jacob and his clan in Egypt. But uh, the book of Exodus begins with uh, a nation in Egypt. They are now 600,000 strong in terms of manpower, armed uh, men who are capable of bearing arms, 600,000 of them. So they have become a great nation. As God promised Abraham, remember he told him, I'll make you great and I'll make you a great nation. And that nation was born in the Exodus. Egypt was the womb in which the nation was conceived and Exodus was the, the Exodus was their birthday. As God puts it through the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I have called my son. That's when Israel became a nation. <clears throat> and in the opening chapters of Exodus, they're called a people, the, a Hebrew word that, that refers almost exclusively to one uh, social group, one ethnic group, a nation. Remember God's word to Pharaoh, let my people go. They were a people. And then in Exodus 14, the Exodus is described, and the chapters that follow uh, tell us about their journey from the Red Sea on down to Sinai as they become a congregation. Or, as you read through those chapters, you might conclude that they're more of an aggravation than anything else, as they moan and cry, complain. I've often thought that uh, Moses' 40 years of herding sheep and hearing bah all day was good training for hearing Israel say, we're tired of this man. They... God provided bread from heaven and water from the rock, and they baked it and boiled it and fricasseed it and fried it and made manna burgers and 
manicotti and banana bread and all sorts of things. And they hated the stuff. But uh, Moses put up with them. His consistent complaint, complaint to the Lord was, I wish you would get these people off my back. As they were taking their first steps in statehood, they were trying to learn how to be a nation and stumbling and falling and failing and and doing a very poor job of it. And yet, the Lord loved him. And he stayed with the thing. Now, here in Exodus 19, we have a chapter that deals with uh, the preparation of Israel for the law. We're going to talk about the law for the next few weeks. And this chapter is preparatory as they gather at the foot of Mount Sinai. This is what uh, Old Testament theologians call Moses' eagle wing speech, and you'll see why as I read through the, the message. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, co my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Verse 4 gives us the idea from which the name Eagle Wing Speech comes. Uh, the Lord likens himself to a mother eagle teaching uh, her eaglets to fly. I'm told that they... Uh, stir up their nest and kick, literally kick the little eagles out of the nest. And uh, the eaglets' wings are undeveloped and their muscles are not very well developed and they can't fly and they flap their way through the, through the air and they would crash except the mother eagle drops down under them and picks them up on her back and lifts them up again. And then she drops them off and they flap their little wings and the whole thing strikes me as for the birds, but that's the way they did it. <laughs> and a little eagle flaps its way through the air, and the mother swoops down under, and she picks them up again until they get the hang of it. That's the way mother eagles teach little eagles to fly. And God said, that's the way I taught you to be a nation. Israel was taking nosedives and about to crash land and hit the rocks, and the Lord kept swooping under them and picking them up taking them back for another try. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness. It always annoys me when people say that the Old Testament is uh, full of fire and brimstone and uh, God is uh, harsh and unyielding and demanding. And, and then you see pictures like this. What a what greater picture of grace and enablement and forgiveness can you envision? It's the way the Lord deals with us. Trying to learn how to fly, how to soar. And we keep doing a bad job of it. But the Lord keeps lifting us up, forgiving us, providing the resources that we need to fulfill the call that 
that He's given to us. And that's what He's done for Israel. You yourselves, He says in the the you is underscored, emphasized. You saw it. You saw how I delivered you from Egypt and how I bore you on eagle wings and brought you to myself. That's That phrase, I brought you to myself, is the key to understanding the relationship between law and promise. The law was not a precondition to their relationship with God. It was the result of it. They were already God's people. It wasn't the law that made them the people of God, they already belonged to him. They were his. He loved them. He had called them to himself. The law was simply the result of that, of that relationship. And then he says in verse 5, If you keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession or my own treasure. That's the word that the uh, King James, uh, the authorized version, translated, you shall be a peculiar people. When I was a kid growing up, that always used to puzzle me. There were some peculiar people in the church I was attending. But uh, that's not really what he's talking about in the 17th century when the authorized version was translated. Peculiar didn't mean odd. People with uh, strange mannerisms. It meant special. That's what the term means, a special people, a treasure all over the ancient Near Eastern world, this particular word, segala is the word in Hebrew, it was used for portable treasure in contrast to a real property, something you couldn't move. This was a treasure that had uh, sentimental value as well as, um, as real value, economic value. This is the sort of stuff that you grab when your house is on fire. The things that really matter to you. This is the sort of thing that you put in your U-Haul when you travel cross country, except it's not U-Haul, it's he-hauls. We're his. We belong to him. Israel was his own special people, highly regarded by God, precious to him. That's the idea. And then he says, you shall be a kingdom of priests. Literally, kingly priests or priestly kings. Now, he's not saying that there would be no office of priest in Israel. Uh, some people have interpreted this, this passage to mean that it was wrong later under law to have a priestly office. But they had priests when the Lord made this statement. If you read on through chapter 19 to verse 22, there were priests before the law. Uh, no, he's not talking about setting aside the priestly office, but rather he's saying that all the people of God are intended to carry out a priestly function, to mediate salvation to the world, to represent men uh, before God and represent God before men, to live out the life of God in the world. That was, that was God's purpose for Israel. Missions doesn't begin with Matthew 28. It, it begins with the call of Abraham. And even before. Abraham and his seed were designed, were, were intended to be a, a visible display before the world of the grace of, of God. That was their purpose, their destiny in the world. And then he says there to be a holy nation. When we read holy, we almost always think pious. Someone who wears a hair shirt and a long face. Someone who looks like they were weaned on a dill pickle. 
or whose face would make a good frontispiece for the book of Lamentations. Uh, no, not at all. The word holy means uh, distinctive or unique or nonconformist. That's the idea. The uh, command to Israel was to be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. They were to be like God. Not like the gods of the other nations, but they were to be like the God of Israel, displaying his character. There's a section in Leviticus, which we'll look at later, called the Holiness Code. At least that's what Old Testament theologians entitle it, the Holiness Code. And it's all based on the idea that God is a holy God, therefore you're to be a holy people. It determines uh, the sort of thing that they ate. It determines uh, the way they treated animals. They weren't to yoke together an ox and a, and a camel because the uh, unequal uh, gates of the two animals would would cause uh, the yoke to rub both. God loves animals, and people therefore ought to take care of their animals, and they were not to rob, uh, take a mother from her from her eggs, and things like that. They were to be a different kind of people because of the kind of God God was, a tender, compassionate, forgiving, and loving God. These are interesting uh, descriptions. A holy nation of Kingdom of priests, God's own possession, and you'll recognize that that's exactly what the church is called in 1 Peter 2. Those same titles are given to us as the people of God today. And you noted as we read through these verses that uh, this was this would be true. They would be a people like this if they kept his commandments. See verse uh, 5, Now then, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. And we say, Aha! I knew it. They had to keep the law. That's how they became a holy people. That's how they became precious to God. If they didn't keep the law, they weren't precious. That's the idea. But what people fail to realize is that the covenant that God is talking about here is not the covenant at Sinai. It's not the law. It's the covenant made with Abraham. And that phrase, keep my commandment, is one that occurs in other places, specifically referring to the covenant with Abraham. The great promise that God made that he would make a great man out of Abraham and bless him and give him a, a, a great... Uh, place in the world through his seed he would bless the whole world and it was all unconditional all the whole thing the whole deal depended upon god abraham merely had to believe god god said i'll make of you a great nation abraham was uh, elderly at the time his wife was past the age of childbearing and god took him out into the stars and he said count them abraham says in effect who can count them and god says you'll have that many descendants and Genesis 15 tells us that Abraham said, I believe that. As hard as it is to believe, as the New Testament says, he hoped against hope. He believed the, the unbelievable thing that God would make of him a great nation. And God said, Abraham is all right with me. He's justified. He's righteous because he believed me. And on that basis, Abraham was saved, not keeping the law. But his relationship with God was secured on the basis of faith. And that's what it meant to keep the covenant. Look at Genesis 17. Let me uh, corroborate that for you. Genesis 17. God, verse 9. 
God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Circumcision was the mark of God's ownership. It was the mark that Abraham had yielded to God's will. And it was a sign. It wasn't circumcision that saved Abraham. It was the symbol or the sign of the relationship that already existed. Keeping the covenant was a reference to Abraham's belief in the covenant. God said, I'll be your God. You'll be my man. And Abraham said, all right, that's okay with me. That's what I want. Let's do it. That was keeping the covenant. And uh, that's exactly what God is saying to Israel as they gather around the foot of Sinai. It wasn't the law that set them right with God. They were already justified. They were already a holy people. Now he says, just keep on believing me. Keep on trusting. Keep relying on me. Stop counting on yourself. Believe that I can do it. Now, let's go back to Exodus 19. Verses 7 and following describe Israel's response. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the, to the Lord. I read one commentator this past week who uh, said that at this point Israel gave up the covenant of promise, and they rashly put themselves under the law. But uh, I think that particular commentator misunderstood because the covenant here is not the law at all. It's, it's the old covenant with Abraham, the one in which God affirmed his love for Abraham and his commitment to him. It was that unconditional covenant. And furthermore, in Deuteronomy 5, when God looks back on this event when Israel was at the foot of Mount Sinai and and uh, he comments on their response. He says, oh, that they always had a heart like this to follow me. There's no censure. This wasn't a blast of egotism. This wasn't a rash vow, a promise in the flesh to try to keep the law. God had never changed his mind. The promise had never been revoked or rescinded. It was still good. The law was, their response to follow the Lord was based upon that covenant. It was never set aside. Let me read another New Testament passage, Hebrews 6. You can turn with me if you'd like, or you can, you can listen. Hebrews 6.13, When God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. It was all right under the law to swear by the name of God. And in this case, God had no God to swear by, so he swore by himself. That's the point. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently awaited, uh, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. He received the son. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath gives it as confirmation. Uh, an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more 
to show to the heirs, that's us, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things, unbreakable, unchangeable, immutable, unrustable, you can put anything you want to in there to, to signify the unchanging character of that oath in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement we who have fled for refuge and laying hold of the hope set before us. Do you see? The promise made with Abraham was absolutely unconditional. Had nothing whatever to do with Abraham's obedience. Abraham just believed God. Trusted him. Took him seriously. And then the whole thing depended upon God. So when Israel says, all that the Lord has spoken... We will do. They were responding in the same way in which we respond to the grace of God. When we see how little we can contribute, as a matter of fact, nothing, and how much God wants to give, we say, all right, Lord, let's, let's do it. I'm with you. I'm on your side. I'm going to trust you and your word. Now, what, what follows throughout the rest of Exodus 19 is a further description of their preparation for this great event. In verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. They washed their garments as an outward sign of their inward cleansing. They were already forgiven. God anticipated any failure to comply with the law they began by walking in a state of forgiveness. That's the same thing that's true of us. Paul says in Ephesians 1, in whom, talking about Christ, in whom we have forgiveness through his blood, redemption from all of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We start out life forgiven. We can't out the grace of God. We walk in that forgiven state. And Israel's, uh, this act of washing their garments was simply an outward illustration of the fact that they they were cleansed, forgiven people, even before the law was given. So even if they failed to keep the law, their relationship with God was, was unaffected. And then in verse 12, uh, Moses was told to, to place a barrier around the foot of the mountain to prevent the people from breaking through and touching the mountain and uh, being, uh, being destroyed. And in verse 16, it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound. This is what Paul in the New Testament describes as the trumpet of God, this sound of a trumpet blast from the top of the mountain so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And we say, yeah, that's just what I thought. Now, that's the way I picture God in the Old Testament. Lightning and thunder and earthquakes and barriers to God. And that's, that's exactly what I thought. That's the kind of God you have in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, it's different. Jesus is approachable and, and he's loving and accessible. But here's a God on the top of a mountain whom you can't approach without fear. Well, this uh, this awesome display is uh, 
what theologians describe as a theophany, an appearance of God in a certain way in order to make a point. And uh, the point that he's trying to make is that he is a holy God. He really is not like us at all. He is holy, absolutely, utterly holy. And his demands for holiness are real. Wherever these theophanies occurred throughout the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 1 and Isaiah 6 and other places, you have the recipient of the vision falling on his knees in recognition of his uncleanness. That's always the effect of this sort of thing. And that's why Israel trembled. They realized that God was not, he wasn't playing games. This was the real thing. This was the God of the universe who was holy and who demanded holiness. And so what you see here in their preparation for Israel is what you see throughout all of Scripture. God is holy, and he does place upon us incredible demands. He insists that we be holy, just as holy as he is. And that command, be holy because I am holy, is found not only in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, in a number of places, but also in, in the New Testament, First Peter. Be holy because I'm holy. And he's not joking. That's really what he wants. That's what he insists upon. But side by side with these demands of holiness are descriptions of his resources that are made available to us to be what he's called us to be. There's enablement. There's power. Everything that he is, is given to us. In this era, the Lord Jesus himself comes to live in our life, and it's his life that provides the resources by which we can be the kind of people that God honestly wants us to be, demands that we be. And then underneath is this incredible, ongoing, ever-present, always available forgiveness when we fail to lay hold of the resources of God. I always see it like a sandwich, you know, it runs all the way through the Bible. There is law, that's, that's all these demands for holiness are. The law is nothing more or less than a statement of the character of God, which you find in the Old Testament under that particular arrangement for Israel. And in the New Testament, in those things that we, that we describe under the Lordship of Christ. And then along with that, there is enablement or power which makes it possible for us to be what we're supposed to be. And God, being the thorough realist that he is, knows that there will be times when we don't lay hold of what God is. We will fail. And then he's like that mother eagle who swoops underneath and bears us up. He always forgives. And you don't just find that in the New Testament. You find it in the Old Testament as well. Now, as I said, God's not kidding. His expectations are impossible. He wants us to be like him wherever we go. In fact, Peter puts it like this. He quotes this passage in Exodus 19, and he says, you're, you're to be a, you're a holy nation. You're my own possession. You're a nation of priests in order that you may show forth the excellencies, the moral excellencies of the God who called you his, into his eternal grace. But you see, that's only possible if we're in a covenant relationship with God. We can never keep the law to get into that covenant. It's impossible. But once we're in that relationship, then we have everything that we need. 
to display the excellencies or the moral character of God. Let me illustrate from the Old Testament how that works. Turn back to Genesis 22. This is the story of the near sacrifice of Isaac. God promised Abraham that he would have a, a son. And Abraham said, oh, I, I know it will be uh, Eliezer's son, my steward. That was a custom in the ancient world. You could adopt your, another uh, a son from someone else in your clan. And that would be your son. God says, no, it's going to be your son. And Abraham believed God, and he waited and waited. We waited 25 years to receive the promise. We get edgy if we don't get the promise in 25 minutes. But as Hebrews says, it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promise. And, and Abraham just kept believing God and trusting him and waiting. And he had his moments. There were failures along the way, but he, he was a man who endured in faith. And in the end, he, he received his son, and he was delighted. The son grew up to young manhood, and, and then there came that fateful day when God said, take him up to Mount Moriah and kill him. And Abraham thought, well, I thought it would probably come to this one of these days. Because uh, in the ancient world, everybody practiced child sacrifice. Everybody, almost without exception. And Abraham, being the man that he was, not having, living in that time, not having any more information than he had, felt, well, I knew it was coming sooner or later. I'd have to offer up my, my son. This is it. And he took that little boy, who probably was a teenager by this time, took him up to the top of Mount Moriah, and he bound him, and he put him on the altar, and he raised that flint knife, and he, he was going to drive that weapon right into his heart, his son's heart. He had no intention of turning back. Hebrews says he didn't have any idea what God was going to do. He knew that he was capable of raising him from the dead if necessary. But he was Abraham was committed. He was going to do what God told him to do, even though it cost him his, his son, his dream. One of the Dutch masters uh, has a picture of this event, and it shows Abraham straining against the angel's hand as the angel's, angel reaches out of heaven, and he grasps Abraham's arm as he's trying to plunge that knife into his boy's chest and you can see the muscles and vein, distended veins in Abraham's arm as he struggles against him. There's no question in his mind he's going to put that boy to death. But as you know, God stopped him. He didn't have to go through with this terrible act. And uh, we read in verse 15, that the angel of the Lord called Abram a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies and in your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because... You have obeyed my voice. And we say, now wait a minute. Wait a minute. These are the provisions of the Abrahamic covenant that, are, that were described in Genesis 12. God said, Abraham, I'll make your name great, and I'll make you a great nation, and through you I'll bless the whole world. 
And it was all unconditional. As a matter of fact, God put Abraham to sleep when he, when he drew up the contract. And now he turns around and says, because you have obeyed, I'm going to do all of these things. It's all conditioned on Abraham's faith. So it's by works after all. But that's not so. Abraham's willingness to put his son to death was not the act that placed him into covenant relationship with God. It was simply the demonstration of the fact that he was already there. His obedience was predicated upon that relationship with God. And it's as though God is saying, I'm going to see to it now that you're in relationship with me, that you obey. That's why James uses this passage when he argues that faith is not faith unless it's something that can be seen. You say you have faith, James says, that's that's great. Let, let me see it. Real faith is going to exhibit, is going to display itself in acts of obedience. James goes back to Genesis 22 for his argument. Paul goes back to Genesis 15 for his, when he argues that justification is by faith and faith alone. James says that's right. But if it's real faith, it will demonstrate itself in acts of obedience because we will want to please him. That's why Jews in the Old Testament love the law. Nobody loves the law today except lawyers. But uh, in the Old Testament era, men loved the law. That's why Paul says there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is not the law. The law, he says, is good. The problem is with men's hearts. There's nothing wrong with the law. The psalmist in 119 says, Oh, how I love the Lord. His law is my delight. Why? Because it's simply an expression of his desire to please God with his life, to show forth the moral excellencies of, of God. As Bob Dylan puts it, You have given everything to me. What can I do for you? That's the function. That's the purpose of the law. That's what it was there for. Paul says in Romans 12, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. The first 11 chapters of Romans spell out what those mercies are. God is given and given and given and given. And out of a desire to please, we respond in obedience. You see? No one was ever saved by keeping the law. No one. In the Old Testament, the, in the New Testament, rather, the, the problem that the apostles and others, and the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees is not with the law, it's with their view of the law. They, they believed that the law could save them. They were legalists. The law itself was not oppressive, but legalism is. Legalism comes in a lot of forms. One is adding to the law, that is simply tacking extra-biblical commands on those that are found in Scripture, but perhaps the most uh, deceitful and subtle form of legalism is this insistence that we try to keep the law by self-effort. That's legalism. And it's that that Jesus attacked. That's why Jesus attacked the Pharisees, because of their insistence that it was law that gave us a right standing with God. But it's not. It's faith that puts us in a right relationship with God. And once we have that relationship, then we have the will and the power to respond in obedience, and there is forgiveness when we fail.
Some poet put it this way, do this and live, the law demands. If we look at it from that standpoint, if we try to approach God through the law, then the law says to us, do this and live, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. A better word his grace doth bring, it bids me come and gives me wings. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you for this um, this view of things. As the Old Testament tells us, the law is not very far from us, but it's in our mouth and in our heart that we may do it. This matter of writing the law upon the heart is not something that, that came after our Lord Jesus came, but was something always available to men. We thank you for doing that. We're spelling out for us clearly what, what you want us to be and writing that word upon our hearts, giving us a clear understanding of what, what it means to please you and then giving us the power that makes it possible for us to be truly pleasing. And then we thank you for that, that forgiveness. It's always there when we fail. It's just our desire this morning to make visible today the invisible Christ, to display his moral excellence wherever we go. Thank you that it's your life in us that makes that possible. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,